I'm Robin. And I'm Wayne. We're investors at VMG Partners, and we help build iconic consumer brands. Every day, some of the world's most fascinating founders share their stories with us before they've made it. Their highs and lows. Mistakes and triumphs. But always extraordinary results. And now we're sharing these stories with you. This is Unfinished Biz. I, I found ways in and, and cold emailed these factories and just said, hey, I want to start this business. I'm going to be in Europe. Can I, can I have an appointment and can I meet with you? On this episode of Unfinished Biz, Parachute founder and CEO Ariel Kay walks us through launching an online-only direct-to-consumer betting brand that expanded into a thriving brick-and-mortar business. Parachute's mantra is when we take care of our home, it takes care of us. It makes premium quality towels, sheets, robes, rugs, even furniture designed to make every home that much more comfortable. And Ariel brought a wealth of branding experience to the table. But like any founder navigating ever-changing consumer needs and demands, as she scaled, she also learned that flexibility is key to survival. I'm I'm still sort of struggling with this remote work. I really miss that connection. Um, I really miss having a pulse on who's feeling great and who's really passionate and who's struggling. Just like knowing and, and being able to look around the room and feeling connected to the people we work with every day. Find out how Ariel navigated the logistical twists and turns of home decor, the challenges Parachute faced as it expanded into physical stores, and when she knew she had to face the swell of competition. Unfinished Biz starts now. All right, Wayne. It does sound like Ariel's always had a passion for interior design, right? Even when she was actually taking on her first you know, I guess official jobs uh, in more PR and advertising and branding. She was always kind of thinking about her true passion. And, you know, that the interesting thing is that's still a pretty big jump between having a passion and actually starting a business. Agreed. I think we've seen this situation before. Great professional training, a personal passion for a category, but that still doesn't make it easy. And even though Parachute had a great start as one of the early movers in D2C home goods that was accelerated during COVID, you know, there's still inevitable challenges, even when the business ramps up like it did during COVID, especially for a founder that's, you know, making all the calls herself. And we're going to hear a lot more about that in this interview to come with Ariel. Today, when I look back, Um, perhaps it was always in the cards um, in the sense that I followed an unconventional path. And I think many entrepreneurs um, find their way to their passion by exploring and being open to new opportunities and being passionate. Um, But I I found myself um, in a position having worked in big agencies for a while um, where I was really looking for something that was more entrepreneurial. Um, I wanted to make a bigger impact. I felt like I had more to give and I wanted to learn and I was interested in just putting in hard work. Um, And I had a number of friends that were joining early stage startups um, and had started their own companies. And I found myself weirdly jealous of the fun they were having, working crazy hours, you know, bailing on dinner plans, not going out, not having a social life, being yeah. so in the trenches. And and for some reason, that was really appealing to me. Um, and so 
um, you know, 10 years ago, essentially, um, you know, I was at this point in my career where I wanted to do something different. And I had been obsessed with home and design. I had been helping friends decorate their apartments, um, getting them featured on various blogs and really became a super consumer in the home space and had one of those aha moments where I felt like, you know, I want to be doing something more entrepreneurial. This is like, it's now or never. And I have this love and passion for home and design. And what if those two interests could merge um, and I could do something myself and, and start something. And um, I, I just, I, I decided to dig in and, and realize that there was no brands in the home category. There was nothing happening that was digital. Um, and my love of building brands and connecting with customers, um, I just saw an opportunity to do something different and interesting. So then how did you get started then? Once once you came to this epiphany of, wait, I want to build something that doesn't exist out there right now. I did what any um, stable person would do and quit my job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, so it was, never, um, it was never a side hustle. No, um, it was a side hustle for about two weeks. <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, I, uh, I found myself not doing my job, building a deck, wanting to like do all this research, learn, and and then was just like, you know what? I'm done with this job. I'm going to do this full time and I'm going to be able to raise money and I'm going to figure it all out and it's going to work. And of course, that's not how it goes. Um, it was way more complicated. But yeah, I um, I quit my job and I started putting together a deck. I started talking to people um, you know, about home and the category manufacturing and design and all the things that I had no experience in um, at all. And then I went to Europe and I visited 15 factories. And then I came back and kind of put all of these thoughts and excitement um, into focus and, and realized that there was really something there. Um, and then I moved um, to Los Angeles because I've been living in New York and decided to really go all in and and sort of knew that if it didn't work, you know, I, I would just go back to corporate advertising. <laughs> How did you find 15 factories in Europe? Um, a lot of research and, and internet searches. I was, um, Google was helpful. Um, but I also, I found myself, um, we're laughing because Google like literally comes up in every episode. Like, <laughs> how did you, how did you, it was Google. I so, mean, I, it's like, how did I learn how to ship and, and how did I learn how to import goods? Like, I mean, right. I was just like Googling everything. Um, but really I, I started reaching out to kind of anyone and everyone that had any sort of relevant experience. Um, I got connected to a friend whose friend's family lived in France and they manufactured window treatments. You know, I just, I started just talking and talking to anyone and some of these factories have websites. So Google actually was very helpful there. Um, but I, I, I just, I started to, I, I found ways in and, and cold emailed these factories and just said, Hey, I want to start this business. I'm going to be in Europe. Can I, can I have an appointment and can I meet with you? Um, and I went and I think every single one of them was just like, oh, that's sweet. There's an American girl here with a suitcase full of pillowcases. Like, <laughs> sure, <laughs> like this should go well. Um, but I, I ended up finding a factory in, in Italy that I was obsessed with and got the vision and um came home and was like this is it we're doing this um and and decided that I was going to start really focused with just sheets and pillowcases and duvet covers and two fabrics three colors um and you know and would evolve from there i mean the vision was always to build this home lifestyle brand and be multi category and go into retail and do all the things that we're doing today but i knew i had to be focused cuz i had limited resources limited experience and you know getting that 
that, you know, real product market fit as people talk about was, <laughs> was probably going to be easier to do with a, with a narrower um, assortment. How did you know uh, which categories to go into? Um, like, how did you pick those? So I picked the bedroom and bedding specifically because you spend a third of your life in bed. Um, there was literally nothing. I mean, 10 years ago, your options were basically going to a Bed Bath & Beyond or a Macy's or a JC. I mean, just there was nothing available um, that was high quality, excessively priced, um, not covered in toxic chemicals or synthetic finishes or artificial dyes. And I felt like the value proposition of improving your sleep experience would build real trust with the customer so that then when we move from category to category, people would say, wow, this brand has already had a real impact in my life. I, I care about what they're doing. Um, I know they care about me because they're using premium quality fibers and, and, you know, going through this, you know, very clean manufacturing process and all the things that I want as a consumer. But really there was just no brands. I mean, no one could name a brand that was on their bed. They could tell me what store they went to and they could tell me that it was a mediocre experience at best, um, but they couldn't tell me what brand they were sleeping on. And as someone who had been building brands, I knew that the power of brand and, and a brand that you connect with such a huge opportunity. So as a brand focused entrepreneur, so you you sourced um, where you're going to get the product from, then what did you do? Like, how did you bring the brand to life from there? Did you already have the name? Like, what was your what was your go to market sort of game plan? I needed some money to build a website um, and to buy my first batch of inventory. So I um, I borrowed money from my parents, a small amount. Um, I I got a few friends and and friends of friends to to give me a another very small amount of capital and then I joined an accelerator in Los Angeles so I joined an accelerator that was called Launchpad um and that gave me another small amount of capital and those three small amounts of capital together allowed me to build a website to buy my first batch of inventory to figure out how to you know get boxes and all the things that I needed to do and also connected me to the ecosystem in LA of other entrepreneurs and um, mentors and investors and people that were also very helpful as I was, you know, sitting there with my head spinning essentially day in and day out, not really knowing how to tackle a to-do list that never could have, I mean, was never ending. But yeah, I, I started really kind of conceptualizing what the experience would look like, you know, the narrative around the quality story and, and who we were. And then by the end of that year, which was, this is 2013, I, I was ready to go. And we launched in January, 2014. At that point, I did have a name, <laughs> um, but there are a few names that before this name, but we don't have to talk about those. <laughs> I was going to ask. That's interesting. How did you settle on the name actually? Um, so the name parachute is inspired by the movement when you make your bed. So the sheets kind of billow down like a parachute. Um, I really wanted something that was not on the nose, like not so obvious, but something that I felt like a brand could really go grow into. Um, I also, one of my bigger insights leading into starting this business was this was a category actually that men had been totally underserved and undermarketed to. And that, you know, I looked around to my friends who were, you know, early thirties and, and staying single longer and had more disposable income and, and actually cared about these products, but really didn't know where to begin. Um, I really wanted a brand that felt very gender neutral, that felt just something that you'd want to talk about, you know, that it that felt um, really in line with who we are as people. And so, yeah, parachute. <laughs> and was it, so when you launched the website, was it immediate lightning in a bottle? It was. Yeah. So I, I had very little capital left after um, 
inventory and the website and, and all the things, boxes and my storage unit full of product and all of that. And so I um I hired a PR agency um to help for like this three-month launch period. I before I worked in advertising, I worked in PR and I knew that the launch moment of a company is is like a one-of-one one experience. You know, people love to talk about new companies. That was like such a compelling, easy story to pitch. And so, um, especially like on the heels of some of the other early D2C brands that had gained so much momentum. I mean, this was kind of like peak D2C moment. Right. So I um, I hired a PR agency and, and we launched January 14th. And it basically instantly, it was just press, 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 like so much excitement. Um, sales went from like, you know, one or two a day that I could kind of trace back to a friend or a family member. Right some way to being total strangers. And all of a sudden it was 30 orders a day and 40 orders a day. And the press just kept, um, kept picking up. And it, I mean, it was, it was really quite crazy, <laughs> um, how quickly we got feedback and validation that this was a category that people wanted something different from that. This was an experience that people were excited about. Yeah. It gave me a lot of excitement. And, and as a result, I was able to raise a seed round, um, you know, about three months later, I brought on my first employee and I was able to kind of get things moving. And then from there, so you, you have this lightning in a bottle, you know, it, it's, it's clearly resonating, you know, you bring on your, your, your first investor, your first employee, you know, fast forward from there, um, you know, a year or two later. So what, what were some of those learnings in those first couple of years, even though there were light, it was lightning in a bottle, like, what did you find that you tried that, that didn't work? And how did you continue to adjust your business accordingly? Sure. So, you know, after raising our first bit of capital, we started experimenting with marketing strategies and channels and um, some of those worked. some of those definitely didn't. Um, and at that point, you know, we definitely, you know, it was exciting that we had raised some money, but we had limited resources, you know, it wasn't that, you know, we couldn't just spend here and there. And um, so we had to be really thoughtful. And so, you know, the ones that were misses were certainly challenging. Um, but I would say that the first few years, inventory was just probably our, our biggest challenge. Um, you know, it was hard to know what products were going to be home runs, which, you know, were going to be, you know, what colors would stick, which colors wouldn't stick. You know, we, right. we were selling through inventory faster than we could get inventory. And um, we tested, you know, pre-order models that totally backfired because then we, pre we sold through our pre-orders and then it was just, you know, like the communications like struggle. I mean, there were, there were a lot of things around, I would say inventory and inventory management um, that we had to go through, um, you know, growing pains. Um, and, you know, it, that I feel like if there was anything that almost broke us in those early days and those first, you know, I would call it three ish years, um, it would be, it would have been inventory. And, and there were a lot of moments where I was like, this is it, we're done. We don't have right inventory and, you know, no one's going to forgive us. No one's going to come back. Like this is, you know, people are going to hate us. And so there are a lot of learnings around how to really communicate with your customer and how to instill trust, even when they're frustrated or when, you know, the experience isn't as ideal, um, and being really upfront and clear with the customer. Um, you know, it was amazing people that were very forgiving of, of pretty, annoying blunders that we made, you know, in those early days. And, um, you know, luckily they were happening more in the early days than they do now. So out of curiosity, I know, um, going through growing pains, but off to an incredible start, obviously a brand that resonates. I think you partially started this because you didn't see anything else really in the marketplace that actually fit this need. 
did you start, and again, this was sort of that earlier wave of digitally native brands and CPG, right? At what point, or was there sort of a more of an influx of competition that started to come in? And if so, sort of how did you think about that? Yeah, so within that first year, um, we saw some competitive brands um, that entered the market. And then there was this whole wave of um, bed in a box brands that entered and some of those players were trying to dabble in embedding as well. And um, I think for me, it was very clear that we that we had a very clear point of view. Um, and I think we had a very clear aesthetic that felt fresh. And so while we were certainly, you know, paying attention to the strategies and and the way that those other brands were entering the market and how they were communicating, you know, quality and their value propositions. I really tried to encourage the team and myself as well to stay focused on who we were. Um, I think one of the things that I really knew based on my previous experience is that the brands that endure are ones that have such a clear point of view that don't that that don't you know try to be something for everyone and that aren't you know this one day and then that another day. And so I felt like if we got too distracted by what other people were doing, it would take us in directions that weren't authentic to who we are. And so that authenticity and being so clear with what we stood for and and really staying focused, um, I think help us earn the trust that we have today from those customers that have been you know part of this journey since the very beginning. Um, but certainly, you know, the competition, you know, while it like fueled the fire and got us excited to just, you know, go and, and succeed, it definitely was was stressful as well. I mean, you know, it, it becomes it, it 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 totally opens you up to a whole nother, um, you know, element of of just challenges. And um, and so, you know, and then people, you know, it's easy to get jealous or be competitive or, you know, think that you're maybe you're not going growing fast enough. And um, but the I think the reason why we are where we are today and we've continued to grow and be successful is because of that point of view, because we've been unwavering to who we are as a brand. And um, you know, we we've never been a discount brand. We've never done these things to cut corners and a lot of things that other brands did. And and I think I think our discipline has paid off. And you did expand to other categories. I mean, what and and so walk us through kind of when you did that. In the thought process? So the vision was always to be multi-category. I wanted to build this home lifestyle brand that touched every room of the home. So that was always, you know, if you look back at my early pitch deck in 2013 that I've made while I was supposed to be doing my day job, um, you know, that that was the story. Um, but I also, again, like because of my experience, I knew the importance of building trust and, and building that focus and really, you know, wanting to nail what we were doing before we tried to stretch ourselves or, or, you know, get distracted by something new. So um, in 2014, we launched in 2016, we, we moved into our first category, new category, which was the bath, um, which was a natural extension. Most people think about bedding and bath together. Um, And so that was, that was our first um, kind of foray into something new. Um, And then from thereafter, we introduced other categories kind of in a more quicker pace. Um, and and a lot of those interests and the demand that we saw in these new categories came from customers. So, I mean, certainly we had a point of view. We had a, a roadmap that we had put together. There was categories that felt very natural in terms of a progression, um, but we also had so much demand. So, you know, we, we launched a mattress, for example, at a time where there was so much competition in the mattress industry, but because we were getting nonstop questions, thousands and thousands of questions, where do I buy a mattress, you know? And so 
we started seeing the way that customers looked to us as an authority and wanting and felt like there was this extension into these other categories um, that, you know, we were leaving, we were leaving money on the table by not being in. And so, you know, despite there being a million bed in a box brands and so many mattress brands, we looked at the market and we said, wait, there's actually this opportunity in this like eco luxury category that's not latex and not foam and is like bringing back springs and ergonomic zones and things that feel really premium um, and, and really in line with who we are. So, um, you know, we we slowly but surely, you know, kind of have expanded. Bedding for kids was another one that, you know, parents were just like, we can't find simple, beautiful premium sheets. Like we want this, but mini, like we, we want our, our bedroom experience to feel like our kids nursery experience to be like our experience, just smaller. Um, and so, you know, I mean, there was a lot of requests and a lot of things. And I mean, that helped guide, you know, what felt appropriate at the time, but the vision was always to be in every room of the home. And today it's amazing to walk into a parachute store and see this assortment, um, and be able to merchandise these incredible spaces um, with really everything that's parachute. And that's, you know, because we recently introduced furniture. So now we've been able to replace the couches and coffee tables and things that are in our stores with our own products. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's been about how do we create this cohesive story throughout the home that's rooted in comfort and quality and has the parachute lens on, on all of these pieces that, that we feel like can just be done in a uniquely parachute way. How did you navigate that business complexity? You know, you, you you go from very focused on bedding, then bath, and just like the number of SKUs, the number of categories. How like how did you prepare your organization? You know, you mentioned earlier about the challenges of managing inventory. You know, it only gets harder with more with more SKUs. Oh yeah, we are we are actively making our business harder every single day. <laughs> so how, how did you navigate these different stages of business complexity? Honestly, by hiring really smart people. I mean, I I have been I think one of my superpowers is a self-awareness around what I'm good at and where I I don't have the the category expertise. Um, like I, I could never pretend that I am an expert in logistics and like freight, you know, like that's just not who I am. I, I'm, I don't have that experience. And, um, a lot of the, a lot of these complexities, you know, they're very, they are unique to our business because, you know, we, we own and operate everything that we do, but there, it's also not reinventing the wheel. Um, and so, you know, being able to bring on a really incredible team with people that are leaders and, um, have incredible experience growing complex businesses was was key. So I mean I I'm I am so grateful for our team and for the people that we've been able to bring on. Um but also, you know, a lot of trial and error. I mean, we are a test and learn type of organization. We are in the business of cozy, comfortable things, but we also have a very dynamic um and sophisticated technology platform and data science organization. And so, you know, we 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 really have a lot at our disposal that can help guide us through these complex decisions and help us make efficient choices. Um, but yeah, leaving it to others to help solve those problems has been. Well, well, it sounds like you built a great team and then, you know, heading into COVID, walk us through kind of what impact COVID had on, you know, maybe the beginnings of it in terms of just maybe the uncertainty of COVID and then maybe the impact in your business in the home category during COVID. 
Yeah. So, I mean, COVID was a very interesting experience for us. Um, you know, we were a team that was all used to going to the office every single day. We didn't have any remote employees. Um, so, you know, overnight, all of a sudden we became a remote workforce um, like everyone else. We also, I believe we had about nine stores at the start of COVID. Um, so we had went through a period of time where we had to close all of our stores during that time, we focused on what can we do to continue to connect with customers. Um, and so we we had accelerated this virtual styling consultation program that kind of mimicked your experience you would have in store in this one-on-one way with, with store associates and with styling assistants. You know, we accelerated technologies like buy online pickup and store, curbside pickup for when our stores did open. But COVID, you know, while March and April of 2020 were incredibly uncertain for everyone, um, you know, we made really challenging decisions to protect our cash position. You know, we basically turned marketing off and just kind of, you know, decided, you know, everything had to be about preservation. But very quickly, it became obvious that with everyone at home, home was very top of mind. Um, And so we did see this tremendous acceleration of the business um, in 2020 and 2021. We were able to have incredibly profitable years. Um, We saw, you know, just a very, a very strong drive and and a very high intent customer coming to our site, um, especially when all of these retailers closed. And for the customer that was used to shopping in store, it opened up their world to the online world. Um, and so I think we also got a lot of new customers because they just all of a sudden had to see what else was out there. They couldn't just go to their neighborhood department store or, or whatever was, you know, their their place of choice. So, and we also grew a lot. So, you know, with, with our, our business growing, we hired a lot of people. We became, you know, essentially a remote workforce, you know, kind of from here on out, we've hired about 50% of our team is now based all around the country. And we really also spent a lot of time thinking about the business that we wanted to be on the other side of that. So um, we accelerated some things, we deprioritized other things um, and, and just continue to think about how we could provide the best experience for our customer, knowing that home has really become the focal point. Um, and, you know, we wanted to be the best partner we could for our customers. This year has been entirely different um, for the home category, you know, as people started prioritizing experiences and travel and Italy and, you know, it was like everyone went there. Did you see it coming? Like, was there, see, so, you know, there's this massive acceleration of the home category as everybody was sitting in their homes you hired up a team you're trying to probably keep up with the demand like was there a point where you started seeing like uh oh like you know it seems like people are changing their purchasing habits now yeah i mean i think early this year with the changes in the in the economic climate um, with talk about inflation, with the war. I mean, there was there were a lot of things that, um, you know, we saw changes in the housing market that that started to impact the business. Um, you know, I think we it was still unclear how much it would impact the business kind of in the early days. Um, and we were still, we had decided to make 2022 a real investment year. So we spent a lot of time opening up, accelerating our store count. We ended last year with 12 stores. We'll end this year with about 25 um, we've got 21 today. So we decided kind of no matter what happens, we're going to make this an investment year. We thought that that was the best thing for the business and to really kind of leverage that growth, reinvest, um, you know, a lot of the profits that we had made over the past two years to really building out, you know, this brand. And we think, you know, I still stand by that decision. But yeah, I think, you know, 
I don't know that it was as obvious as maybe it should have been. And, you know, hindsight's always 2020. But I do think, you know, there's like a, there's pendulum swings that are, are happening, you know, kind of always. Um, and with the way that I view the world looking forward, like home is never going to be something that people aren't prioritizing in their life. You know, we, these are spaces that we live in. People are working remote, whether it's a hybrid model or um, full-time remote. I think that just the orientation around home and its importance and the value that you get from the products that we sell, partially because of COVID, has, has will leave a lasting impact. And so um, I'm as bullish and confident as ever in the brand and the business. Um, and I think, you know, we'll see what happens in the next few years. And, and we're, you know, like everyone, kind of keeping a close eye on the ever-changing dynamics of the world. <laughs> because they impact all of our businesses, you know, but, um, but yeah, I mean, it's been a very interesting time. How, how did you navigate, you know, was there another like inventory moment for you in that? Like, cause it's, you know, you, you hear about Walmart and target and they've, they've been well chronicled in there in the news on like, how did you navigate like the, cause did, did you find that the demand curve changed like overnight or was it gradual? Like, how did you navigate like your inventory purchases for that change in demand cycle? Yeah, so we've got really strong relationships with our manufacturers, like extremely strong. And that's been really helpful. We also manufacture almost all of our bedding and bath products in Europe and our our distribution centers in in New Jersey. So our our logistics, you know, the way that our logistics system works is we, we get those finished products, they go on a boat and they go to New Jersey. So a lot of what many of those other companies experienced with shortages and, and demand issues and or just supply chain issues were a result of manufacturing in Asia and then also shipping through the California ports. And so we actually didn't have any of those pressures on the business and we were able to completely keep up with demand. We were able to pull forward um, POs. We were, you know, working on a monthly basis, a weekly basis yep. with our manufacturers, giving them updated projections, being able to flow through inventory. I mean, in some cases, we actually brought we brought up colors and, and things that we had been working on to launch earlier to have more, you know, demand to keep up with more demand. But really that relationship um with the customer, like mixed with our our ability to to forecast demand um with sophistication um through technology allowed us to be just allowed us to be in a strong place for the customer. Um so we we fared pretty well. I mean, when, when a lot of, when all of that conversation was happening and to be honest, I'm actually, I mean, I'm not grateful that that happened as far as it impacting other people, but I think just like the, the realities around logistics and supply chain and the way products are made that became part of conversations, like, like just dinner time conversations, you know, being I'm in California, you know, I remember going up the coast near Laguna with friends and you see all those boats out there just stuck, you know, during the holidays last year. And like the fact that we were having conversations about, you know, product demand and the challenge that we're facing and shipping costs and why this holiday, it's going to be really important to, you know, purchase early. And we have to like get out of this instant gratification mentality. It's just not healthy. It's not sustainable. Like I, I, I actually think it's really great that we, that those conversations started becoming mainstream and and that we can you know have open conversations with our customers about supply chain issues and and 
that like I think has been embraced in a new way. And so I think that's one of the many kind of silver linings just about kind of how businesses are going to be run and the expectations of them moving forward. And yeah, the pressure that just the whole system puts on on so many people and how many people touch these products and the, you know, it's just, I think we we all got sort of used to just being like, I want this and I want it now. Yeah. You you click it and then you just forget about it exactly. until it arrives. And it's just, you know, that's just not it's not it's not good for the planet. It's not good for anyone. So, you know, I think there's I think there's a lot of interesting things that um will hopefully change business as a whole and and kind of just consumer goods. Right after the break, we'll be back with our featured guest, Parachute founder and CEO, Ariel K. Unfinished Biz is a VMG Partners production. Find us wherever you get your podcasts and catch up on all our past episodes at unfinishedbiz.com. Follow us on our Unfinished Biz LinkedIn page for news and updates. If you love the show, we love your iTunes reviews. But now, let's get back to our conversation with Ariel Kay, founder and CEO of Parachute. If you could pick one, was there a moment in time where you felt like you really were betting the company where... You know, if you made the wrong call, things would have actually gone in a totally different and bad way. I, I would say some of the inventory stuff that I talked about before was certainly just, you know, there were moments where all of a sudden we were like not going to have any new inventory for four plus months and just, you know, how to, how to deal with that when people want their sheets, you know. Um, right. so th- those were those were moments where it was like, you know, we got to we really got to figure this out. Makes sense. Well, it sounds like it's been an awesome decade. Um, what What's the highest moment of that journey? This might sound silly, but I do think just hearing from customers, like just like running into people, meeting people out that are obsessed with the brand. I mean, it's not, I wouldn't say there's one pinnacle peak moment. I mean, there's been so many, but um, for me, the hearing from customers and and hearing that people love the brand and how that it's made an impact in their lives, just like, always makes me feel weak in the knees and emotional. <laughs> <laughs> That's very understandable. I'm, sh- I'm sure it's also amazing when you walk into other people's homes and you're like, oh, those are, yeah, those yeah, are exactly. our sheets. Those are our... Yeah. Uh, you know, that's, that's their bathrooms full of our products. And we, we are fully decked out at our home. Just love it. FYI. Love it. Yeah. Yes, exactly. But, um, you know, entrepreneurship's not always rainbows and unicorns. What's, is there a particular low, low moment that's, that's the one where you go, wow, that was a, that was a dark day. Um, You know, there's been a number. I think as a sole founder, um, it, it, there's just a lot of like isolating and lonely moments where, you know, there's feels like so much pressure. Um, and there were moments where, you know, with fundraising, where it was like, are we going to be able to close around? Is this, are we going to keep doing this, uh, like moving forward? Is this, you know, I mean, those, there's been definitely, but I, I do think the being lonely and feeling kind of alone on the journey, um, it's not necessarily one particular moment that's happened <laughs> a lot. <laughs> you know, you you, you kind of hear it both ways. You know, you have the there's certainly the the loneliness uh, of being a, a singular founder, but then also on the show and also just in our our travels as investors in the space, the, the challenges sometimes of having partners. You know, co 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 founding partners too. It's just you know that seems like there's always you know there's 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 certain dynamics you know, and in, in, in either case, I think the moral of the story is it's just, it's hard just hard. It's really hard to be a founder. 
whether you're a founder or a co-founder, yeah. it doesn't matter. Every, it's real every hard. permutation is just really darn hard. There's moments yeah. where I'm like, gosh, I just wish there was a co-founder here. And there's moments that I'm like, thank like, oh <laughs> yeah. my gosh, like, what would I do if I had another person like with a differing idea? You know, it's just, uh, yeah. So, yes. Totally. Well, at this point, 10 years in, what's keeping you up at night? Um, I think today I'm, I'm still sort of struggling with this remote work dynamic. I, mean, I think there's so much productivity that happens. And I, I know that a lot of people are really happy. And in some ways, you know, there's definitely, there's a lot of, there's a lot of upside, but, um, I really miss that connection. Um, I really miss having a pulse on, on who's feeling great and who's really passionate and who's struggling, just like knowing and, and being able to look around the room and, and just feeling connected to the people we work with every day. So, um, yeah, I'm still struggling with that and, and trying to figure out how to maintain culture and connection and, and keep the spirit of parachute that was like so tangible when you walked in our offices and there was, you know, a hundred people sitting around that's just harder to do virtually. hundred percent. Definitely a theme that comes up in terms of just how to, I think, especially as, you know, so many companies have hired a remote workforce. It's like, there's really no turning back, but also how do you, how do you keep it with the same level of, you know, that same spirit that got the company to where it was pre COVID. Yeah, I mean, we we just always, I mean, we do a ton of, sur- not a ton, but we do surveys about two, three times a year um, to kind of dig into sentiment and what people want to see more of and what's working. And always we we heard every single time, you know, I, I came because I'm, I love the brand, but I stay for the people. Um, and when, when there's less of that connection, you know, how do you, how do you create the stay for the people energy when you don't get to have lunch with a person every day, you know? Well, Robin, this was an exciting one. Um, You know, Ariel's business really took off from the start in building a lifestyle-oriented home goods brand. And like many successful brands we've seen, she really nailed a hero product from the start, and in this case, in the bedding category. Well, for me, two themes really jumped out. The first is she's always been so rock solid on understanding her consumer. And as she actually has progressed into different categories, it's really more of a testament to her consumers asking for more and more and more. And I think that's been incredible. The second, though, is she's also recruited a top-notch team because new categories create, you know, additional complexity. So she was able to kind of do that and make sure that she was still able to keep up with the business. And the business really took off during COVID and that team build had to take another form. So it went from a tight knit LA based team to really just trying to keep up with the man, hiring the best talent she could from all around the country to be able to supply it. While at the same time, I thought it was very interesting that, you know, you had this COVID boom in the home category, which include parachute, but it seems like she ran into similar challenges related to inventory of buying towards that demand. And as the world opened up, folks started engaging in other categories and she had to navigate, what do you do with that inventory, the team build that she built up during during COVID and kind of next steps from there. But having said that, even with all of those challenges, it seems like she was able to keep her life balanced. And, you know, it's certainly having her hands full and running a business. She seems like she still has an opportunity to really appreciate the good things in life, too. 
Well, I've got two little kids, so I spend a decent amount of time in various parks, yeah. <laughs> playgrounds, the beach, walking around the neighborhood. Uh, you know, I, I like I like hanging out with friends, good long dinners, great wine, tequila. What's your favorite tequila? Um, that's a good question. Um, you know, Classe Azul is one that I can like see from here. Yes. Uh, but I like um, always a beautiful bottle too. Always a beautiful bottle. Yeah. Jimmy's inspired pizza. Apparently yeah. too. Inspired pizza. I love. Goes I, well. Goes well with tequila. Yeah. That's sure. Right. Well, Ariel, ready, ready for our signature game? There may be more tequila questions. You'll never, you'll never know. <laughs> Let's do it. All right. What's the most useful product or service you've bought this year? Um, the aura ring. What's something you can't cook? A lot of things. I've never cooked a steak. What's one thing you consider yourself good at and one thing you consider yourself bad at? I am good at singing. Nice. And I am bad at um sports <laughs> what's your favorite appliance pretty obsessed with an air fryer to call me basic but it's nice. changed my life <laughs> what's the story behind your name yeah well my mom um wanted to name me lily and my mom was really pissed that my dad had brought no ideas to the table and the 11th hour my dad was like yeah i've got this idea Renee, what about Ariel? And that was it. What were you the last time you wore a costume for Halloween? I was a skeleton last year. What's the most used app on your phone? Well, probably Slack, if we're talking about work stuff. Um, but um, like photos or Instagram, I guess, is probably up there too. Sports team you're most loyal to? Lakers. Hmm. Do you have a go-to karaoke song, given you're a singer? I do. I have a few. Depends on the mood. Um, but dance with somebody is one that I like to I like to I like to yeah. grab them first and just like do a banger and let people just like let that energy kind of nice. Get going. Great job. Last question. What advice do you have for aspiring entrepreneurs? Don't sweat the small stuff is my like go to. Um which is like kind of obvious, um, you know, just like getting out of your own way. And, um, but I think also like progress, not perfection is something that I like repeatedly come back to, like, especially entrepreneurs are generally a little type A and like really care about, you know, this idea of like perfection. And I don't know, I have to remind myself of that constantly, just focus on progress, get things going, you can iterate, you can evolve. But if you worry too much about perfection, you are just never going to get anywhere. That's great advice. Ariel right, okay, thanks for uh, joining us on Unfinished Biz. Thanks for having me. This is fun. Thank you. You've been listening to Unfinished Biz. I'm Wayne. And I'm Robin. We'll be back next time with Stu Landisberg, founder of Grove Collaborative, which creates and curates more than 150 sustainable household products that are healthy, effective, ethically produced, and cruelty-free. Stu believes you should never have to choose between a clean home and a clean planet. But like all our guests on Unfinished Biz, his journey is still unfolding. Don't miss our conversation with Stu Landisberg next time on Unfinished Biz. 
These are the opinions of Robin and Wayne and our guest entrepreneur and are not necessarily the opinions and thoughts of VMG partners. And now a word from our lawyers. This is not an offer to buy or sell any investments. Entrepreneurs interviewed on this podcast may not be associated with VMG businesses and discussions of their companies should not be viewed as an endorsement by VMG.